0: Can I brought my book? (laughs) Actually, it's my security blanket. That's all. First, I'd like to um, tell you that I'm just recovering from a case of bronchitis so if I start to choke and cough just bear with me don't worry it'll pass my name is Harriet I am an alcoholic I'm a member of the Carl Gables group I live in my Florida I'm delighted to be here Uh, when Barb contacted me and invited me I was thrilled I don't think I've ever been to Indiana but there are many places I don't think I've been Some I, well, (laughs) I wish I hadn't been. My sobriety date is January fourteenth, nineteen fifty six. Something. what's that old white-haired babe going to tell me? (laughs) You don't get these white hairs easily. And it takes a long time to get them. And you don't get them unless you've been where you are now. I've been where most of you are now. And I don't have to go back. I don't ever want to go back. I take no great credit for my sobriety. The only credit I can take is that I applied these principles to the best of my ability at each stage of my sobriety. Not too well those first days, those first 24 hours when I didn't understand anything at all except when I walked into an AA. I was comfortable. And why I was comfortable was because what Ken talks about so much is the laughter. I hadn't laughed in a long time. And when I heard you people laughing, and, and today when I come into a, a, a meeting and I see a newcomer and I say, oh, let there be some laughter today. And when the laughter, as it almost always does, comes, I look over at the newcomer and see if it's getting through to him that we no longer have to live in, a, in an emptiness, in despair. Alcoholics Anonymous has given back life a new dimension. I'm one of those people who believes that I was always alcoholic. I don't believe that uh, I drank too much, too often and too long and became alcoholic. I know some of you do believe that and that's okay. But in my particular case, I believe that because I was an alcoholic, I had to drink the way I drank. I had to drink too much, too often and too long. I had no other choice. Once I tasted alcohol, The mental compulsion was set up and it never let go until the day I came to Alcoholics Anonymous. Our illness is threefold, spiritual, mental, and physical. And certainly when I was nine years old and given a little glass of brown stuff as a medicinal aid, I was told that would help indigestion. And as a nine year old, I didn't know I had indigestion. (laughs) But I was an obedient and I drank it, and it was good. It made me feel grown up. It made me feel part of this adult crowd that I was sitting with eating lobster and steamed clams at midnight. I still love lobster and steamed clams at midnight, and I'm free this evening. <laughs> I was an only child and adored. I I know nothing about dysfunctional families. I can't blame my drinking on anybody. I believe that uh, the self-centeredness started on. I was taught to be an unselfish child. My parents um, were good parents uh, as best they knew how to be. And um, because one had a, a very good college degree and my father had no schooling whatsoever, no formal schooling, each in their own way, wanted me to have a good education. And I did went to private schools and um, on to college and uh, everything was centered around me. And um, but the selfishness, I I didn't understand that when I first came in the program and started hearing about selfishness, self-centeredness, we think is the root of all our problems because I knew that I had not been a selfish child. I shared my toys, I shared uh, presents, I shared school, um, but I didn't realize it's self-centeredness, my, the whole world was uh, around me. And uh, so when I went off to college and my parents wanted me to have a good education, I was still self-centered and uh, having a marvelous time. Uh, got only average grades, even though I was as smart as anybody, but I was having too much fun. And because I was enjoying life so much, I I didn't realize that uh, the world was uh, coming to a a drastic change, that World War II was forming. I also didn't know that there was a Great Depression. And as I think back on this now, uh, I was 17, 18, 19 years old, studying to be a school teacher, which was the fate of most women in my day. Uh, You either got married or you remained a spinster. And taught school. That's what you did. And um, so uh, here I was going to college and going to be a school teacher, and didn't even know there was the Great Depression on the, the the Great Depression that we all remember and talk about at least. I'm sure you don't remember it, but your parents and grandparents do. And uh, I had no idea what this was going on, because uh, I was just having too much fun. I had my own car. I when I was 15, I didn't even have a driver's license to drive it, but my father knew everybody and the cops knew him. He was a successful businessman. And so um, um, I did graduate and um, uh, took a business course at my parents suggestion. And this was the one that uh, my parents uh, dictated to me uh, My teachers and parents had led my whole life. I'd been told by them what to do, what courses to take in school, which boys to bring home from college, which boys to uh, go to the dance with, and uh, what dresses to wear. And uh, it was all managed for me. And um, from the time I had my first drink, it was always a, a conscious effort to listen to see if there was going to be any alcohol served at any of the parties. We were 15, 16 years old, and when somebody said, oh, you put two aspirin in a glass of Coke, you'll get a high.
1: <laughs>
0: well, I tried it, and I did. It was mental and emotional, you know. <coughs> I began to drink beer. There was a lot of beer in my part of Pennsylvania where I grew up. Some of you may uh, know that part of the country, or northeastern Pennsylvania. We had a wonderful beer called Stegmeyer's. Young Freddy was part of our drinking crowd. It was a Bartels beer, and the, to- the shots were friends of my family, so we always had a case of each in our home. And when the shots came, we drank their beer, and when the Stegmaier's were there, we drank their beer.
1: <laughs>
0: I didn't much care. I drank anything that came along.
1: <laughs>
0: I shocked one of my early dates by ordering a boiler maker. I had seen this done in some movie but I didn't know how to do it and I ordered the boilermaker made with gin followed by beer. For a while I pretended to like gin, I thought sicker than I was. (laughs) (coughs) The um, When I got out of the business school and got a job and I was sent to Philadelphia to um, work for the government. And I found a new manager. My parents and teachers had managed my life right up to this point, And now my new manager began telling me exactly the same things that my parents did. They told me which boys to date, <coughs> which dresses to wear, where to go on dates, and uh, how to behave, how to think, and how to talk, and what kind of slinky dresses to wear. And my new manager was alcohol. And alcohol ran my life until the day I came to Alcoholics Anonymous. To your help.
1: <laughs>
0: my drinking um, progressed. I had fun for a while. I was a good date. But my um, my dates began to, my dates began to say, uh, "Look, don't drink so much tonight." And I'd get on my high horse and I'd say, Oh, I won't drink at all. And so I would be a miserable date and I would make everybody unhappy and I'd sit in the corner and pout and they'd say, Oh, come on, take a drink. Okay, okay, (laughs) let's go, let's go. (laughs) World War II came along and I was working for the Army as a civilian. And when World War II came along, I said, "This is for me. I'll, I'll get out of this situation. I'll join one of the women's corps that are starting." And the Women's Army Corps was starting, the Women's uh, Wax, and I, I discarded that idea primarily because I didn't care for the uniform. I was very patriotic,
1: <laughs>
0: <coughs> and um, so I looked over the other uniforms and uh, decided that I would make a very good Marine. And World War II, you do know it's World War II we're talking about. uh, The uh, Lady Marines wore um, um, an olive drab uniform with a red ascot tie. And that's what got me, was the red tie. And and the cap had a red silk cord around it. And I was a brunette, and I was thin, and I was pretty. And it was just, it was my kind of thing. (coughs) And so the day I was so sick and hungover, and I couldn't make it to work, and I, I, I seemed to know where to go, I went up to Richmond to join the Marine Corps, and by the time I got to the recruiting office or wherever it was, it's very vague in my mind, I, I just, uh, I was so sick, and I needed to drink, but yet I knew I couldn't drink. This was the day I was going to be the John Wayne Marine type, you know, and, and they couldn't possibly smell liquor on me. And so I'm trying to control my shaking and uh, I was so sick and answering questions and trying to control my handwriting because uh, did you ever try to sign your name when the the, the hand won't function and and it just sort of flies off, particularly if you're writing a bad check, you know? And so he's saying to me uh, uh you want to go to, we'll send you to officer training school I said no no I don't want to be an officer oh you'll make us a fine leader look at this wonderful education and so I became an officer an ensign in the United States Navy a- and the supply corps and uh, they sent me to an ammunition depot <laughs> And, and there was a there was a, uh, an explosion on base, but I had nothing to do with it
1: <laughs>
0: They assigned me to uh, some supplier um, warehouses, and I was in charge of these warehouses and I had a civilian uh, gentleman who did the work i ne- i don 't think I ever did anything. But they assigned to me also a Jeep. They assigned, oh, I loved my Jeep. Uh, They assigned a a pickup truck, um, eight seamen to do the actual labor, and a forklift truck. And I loved my forklift truck. And on the days when there had been two, three, four martinis for lunch, I was the one who drove the forklift. (laughs) World War II ladies' skirts were very short and I would get in that thing and pedal the things with my legs going lickety-split and the forks going up and down and wheel down here and turn around on two wheels and come back down here. (laughs) Having a ball and my eight seamen laying on the ground laughing, having a wonderful time Oh, we had fun for a very short time. (laughs) And what happened was my seaman, whom we call Cece, one day did not laugh. And he said to me in a mumbling kind of talk, he said, We don't like you anymore. What's happened? You talk like us. You mean. We don't like you anymore. And I pretended, as I was to do now for the next few years... I pretended I did not hear him, but I knew that it was beginning to show. I knew that it was showing what I was feeling on the inside. I was changing from the the lady that my parents had tried to make me into, into a drunken woman. I can't say a drunken lady because there is no such thing. You're either a lady or you're a drunk, and I was turning into a drunk and I knew something terrible was going on but I know now from what CeCe muttered that it was showing on the outside and I did not know how to handle that and I began to be miserable and I began to come home from Boston into Hingham, Massachusetts and the shore patrol would pick me up and take me home because they saw I was unable to walk straight I fell asleep passed out really on the little commuter train back then out of Boston um it 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 was uh and I was proud of my uniform and when I would come to and find out that the shore patrol had brought me home I was so sad I, I was just so ashamed and I would take a drink to ease that pain the morning drink came quickly to me I had to drink. I was alcoholic, and I did not know that I had a threefold illness, that it was physical, it was spiritual. The physical allergy had always been there, and the compulsion had set up, and I had no control over that compulsion. And I didn't know about the spiritual aspect, and when I came into Alcoholics Anonymous, someone, and Ken says, we, we make things up, and I heard this that some people made up. They said, oh, well, first you get well physically, And then you begin to get well mentally, and after that, you'll begin to get well spiritually. And I believed it, and I repeated it. And when I found out what it says in the book, the spiritual recovery must come first. And when I look over the day that I took my last drink, and it wasn't any power that I had, it was because I asked God finally for help. I surrendered. And the only enduring strength that I've ever had is because I admitted complete defeat. And this is the first principle that Bill Wilson talks about in the 12 and 12. The first principle for complete surrender is to admit complete defeat, enduring sir. Enduring. enduring something that will last forever and I've been sober now 36 years and that's pretty damn forever because I completely surrendered and that's a spiritual principle another thing that people make up and I repeated this (laughs) I, I heard someone say and this sounded so good it says we members of Alcoholics Anonymous have very high IQs. All of us. I thought that was great, and I repeated it and repeated it, and I finally found out that nobody says that except us. <laughs> I got out of the Navy, uh, they promoted me to, you know, what else, the Lieutenant Junior Grade, and um, I made it through uh, without causing too much trouble, and um, by that time my friends had been going overseas, you know, their services, we Navy ladies didn't go overseas in those days, we were supposed to relieve the boys to go off and fight the war, but I, I was jealous, and I was down in the Pentagon building one day, and there was a sign saying recruiting so I went over and signed up again and off I went (laughs) to uh, Algiers in North Africa and uh, Algiers had just barely gotten over uh, Humphrey Bogart and uh, Charles Boyer and all those people and it was really well it was just the perfect place for a drunk alcoholic you know and there were a lot of us there. Oh, God, where were a lot of us?
1: Uh,
0: but that's where I met my Arab. Now, my Arab wasn't just any ordinary fellow. Was not, uh, mine was one of these people that you see on television now, uh, a, a, a big shot. And uh, he had a title. He he was called a Kaid. Now, Kaid is like the mayor, maybe the mayor of... Uh, of um, I don't know, you know, a podunk or something. And um, he was the mayor of an oasis called Busada. And so we rode our camels into the sunset. And I really thought that I was going to dwell forever in this tent in the Sahara Desert. Now, I remember very well the the Persian rugs on the floor and the little boy to fan me and somebody was feeding me grapes. (laughs) And the State Department frowned on
1: this.
0: (laughs) And they sent for me to come back to Algiers. And as we rode these camels back into Boussada, my Arab, and I wish I could remember his name. <laughs>
1: I'm
0: doing all right, but I'm. <laughs>
1: mm. He was
0: riding ahead of me on his camel and he was wearing this garment called a burnous. And, and this garment, uh, the burnous, was a, a flowing garment in my mind's eye, my drinking mind's eye. It was so glamorous. And uh, it, was, it was the Lawrence of Arabia and uh, um, all these marvelous old movies of Rudolph Valentino rolled up into one and I just wanted that garment, that burnous. it was so beautiful. And he liked my navy raincoat, so we traded. <laughs> and when I got back to Algiers, I was informed that I was being sent back to the States, and they sent me back on a lovely ocean liner, and I wore my burnoose as an evening wrap. Now, this was a cape-like affair with a hood on it, and I wrapped myself into it, and I peered out over people, and I lurked in corners. It was a very weird performance. <laughs> I thought I was a spy (laughs) and in a a, a moment of some kind of truth I I looked at the thing and it wasn't made of white silk at all it was uh, not a glamorous garment it was made of brown wool And it was full of moth holes and gritty sand. And it had been wrapped around sick goats and sheep. And it stunk. It really did. I don't really know whatever happened to that. But I truly... Believe that I've been wearing it for a very long time, and I'm wearing it right now, very loosely, very comfortably. And today it has 12 buttons, and I can push those buttons as I need them. Sometimes one, two, sometimes ten, sometimes 12, and it's a very comfortable garment, and I love it. It's a symbol, and sometimes when the winds are blowing and things aren't going quite my way. I have to pull it up close and wrap myself in it and sometimes peek out over it, see what's going on. And I take refuge within this Vernuse with the 12 buttons because I live not only by 12 steps, but by 12 traditions and 12 concepts. And if you've never heard of the concepts, I suggest you ask your group to find them for you and get acquainted with those. And I'm afraid some of you may have to do the same thing about traditions too. Traditions is how we unite. This is how we stick together. Bill Wilson said we have to stick together or we will die. We cannot do this alone. And these traditions can help you in your daily life just as the steps can. I never went to jail. I should have many times. I, I, um, um, was taken to jail in a paddy wagon for a minor infringement of the law and in the complete blackout I called the city manager of Alexandria, Virginia, an old friend from my army days and he came to me and he rescued me and he put his arms around me and he said, promise me you'll never do this again, promise me you'll never drink like that again. And I promised him as I promised my mother and I promised my father and I promised my first husband. I promised everybody I wouldn't drink like that again. But I had no idea what they meant because I had no other way to drink. I drank like that because I was alcoholic and did not know I was alcoholic and I did not know any other way to drink. I still don't know what a social drinker is. I, I, I was on a plane not too long ago and, and they were started serving drinks right out of Orlando and we were going up to winston-salem and this woman di- uh, di- uh, diagonally across the aisle from me she ordered one of these little things she paid three dollars for that thing it was this big and and she had a, a seatmate, and they're sitting she she took the thing and she she started to unscrew the top and then he said something to her and she stopped and she listened to him <laughs> And pretty soon when he stopped talking, she resumed the unscrewing of the cap. And then she started to pour. And you know what she did? She held it up to the light and she poured a few drops into this glass. This Betty Betty good thing. And after she poured about half of it into the glass, she put the top back on it. And put it in her purse. And I never saw it again. Then she sipped that half a drink all the way, it got, it got hot, it, it, the ice melted. Now if that's social drinking, you can have it. What a waste of booze. I don't know to about social drinking. Uh I, I was asked, when I was living in Washington, D.C., I went to college there in Washington, and I, I lived in Washington, and uh, I drank in the nicest hotels, and I was asked to leave. I was locked out of the Willard Hotel one time. Well, oh, that was terrible. Yeah. yeah. Oh, embarrassing. But I was asked to leave the Mayflower Hotel, the lovely Grand Hotel of, of, of in Washington, And they didn't even take me out the front door. They took me out the side door to Sale Street. And as they did, the neighborhood cop was coming along and he said, come on, I'll walk you home. I I live just a few blocks away. And when I got there, my parents were waiting at the door for me. And I, I remember one of them saying to me, why, why do you drink like this? And, and i in all my drunk, and I was a wet noodle when I was drunk, I didn't have any strength, but I tried to hit them, and I tried to kick, and I screamed, and what the hell do you care? I'm not hurting anybody. These two wonderful parents who loved their only child and who wanted nothing but the best for this, to be a young, little lady. And, and, and they remembered the time they sent me to to school with the black patent leather shoes, and the white gloves to be this little lady and here's this drunken tramp being brought home by the neighborhood cop and inside I'm crying and the book says it sometimes we tell the truth and the truth is we don't know I didn't know how sick I was I didn't know I was dying of alcoholism And I was in my early 20s and I had begun to try all the remedies, I'd not drinking in the morning, not drinking this, switching from beer to this and switching from that and eating this and eating that. Never occurred to me not to drink at all. Never occurred to me. And the time I knocked a bottle of beer out the window and I crawled down into the rain gutter to pick it up and I turned around to get the beer back into the room and I... Clung, clawed my way through the snow and the ice and it did occur to me that that was not social drinking
1: yeah
0: I, I was receiving mail with no return address and inside the envelope were little pamphlets about alcoholics anonymous and in 1955 one of them that came in the mail was this letter to a woman alcoholic I took it out of the envelope letter to a woman alcoholic addressed to the woman who is still drinking but who may suspect that she has a problem and I did it real quick
1: <laughs>
0: never saw that particular pamphlet again until the days weeks that I came into Alcoholics Anonymous and on the first page it says I am writing you a letter and putting it in a safe place where you will find it and hide it (laughs) you will hide it from your family and I didn't have a family I just hid it wonderful pamphlet in December of 1955 I was in my last hospital. I've been to a lot of hospitals and this one was a mental ward because there was no other place to put me. And in a few weeks I was going to be 39 years old and um, I was locked up in a locked ward by the veterans hospital. Nobody else wanted me. Um, Hospitals didn't want us in those days. You young people today have the benefit of these treatment centers. And you're, you're given lectures and you're told about the disease of alcoholism. And when I was coming along, I just really barely missed the days of the snake pits. But this was a wonderful new veterans hospital. And they knew something about alcoholism. And we were told about, um, we were given a little lectures about it and the nicest thing about that whole thing that Christmas was uh we were practicing for the Christmas play I was King Herod now if you've never been King Herod in the Christmas play in a mental ward (laughs) and the most exciting thing about it was Shepherds escaped on Christmas Eve And right after that, they told me I was going to be discharged. And on January the 9th, they said, "You're going. To, we're going to put you on the train and don't drink like that anymore. And I still did not know what that meant. So when I got on the train on January the 9th, I drank like that because I knew I was no other way to drink. They had put me out into a war and what does an alcoholic do when you don't know how to handle it you drink and that's what I did and it was the worst it was the last and I hope I never forget it I bought the bottle someplace along the line I got off the train I don't remember buying the bottle if you tell me that you bought a bottle and don't remember it I believe it because I did it so I had this bottle in my hand and I took a drink in front of the mirror in the ladies room somewhere in North Carolina I think and I watched myself in the mirror and uh, uh, I was shaking I needed I hadn't had a drink in four and a half months I'd been in somebody's mental ward for four and a half months my husband had divorced me while I was there and I had a few bucks he paid to get rid of me I don't blame him and and I and I had this bottle and I lifted it to my lips and as I did so I saw my face begin to change and it relaxed I was getting my medicine I was getting the elixir of life and as I took that first drink into my system and it just blew up to my head and down in my tummy and the umbrella just opened up no oh, talk about new dimensions and um, in my mind's eye the bottle got bigger and bigger like Alice's bottle Alice in Wonderland and my and it's just, there's a new pamphlet out the last few months. It's the 12 steps illustrated. And it's got a great big bottle and a little tiny person. And that's how I felt that day. That bottle was bigger than I was. And I knew it. I gave up. I knew it. And I came to believe that there was something crazy. Because I was just out of a mental institution. And I had been there because I couldn't drink. And here I am just out of this institution and I'm drinking. And I needed to be restored to normalcy. I needed to come back into regular life. And I came to believe that there was a power called Alcoholics Anonymous that could do that for me. Because I remembered some of these pamphlets. And I made a decision on Monday, January the 9th that I was going to commit myself to Alcoholics Anonymous. A commitment of decision I did not want what I had anymore the first three steps I took on January the 9th but I had taken a drink of alcohol and that compulsion had set up and I could not stop and I tried and I tried all the little social tricks that I had seen other people do the sip sip sipping oh terrible And on Friday night, January the 13th, the train was pulling into Miami, Florida, and I was crying, and I needed to continue to drink. And you had to go down to the end of the sleeping car to get the water out of a terrible old tank of warm water with some kind of disinfectant in it. And they had paper cups that were flat, and you had to open them up and... It was two hands and you had a bottle and you needed two hands for that and you had to do the, you needed six hands and I cried because I couldn't do it all at once and I had to have that drink and that's where I was Friday January the 13th and we pulled into Miami about six o'clock on Saturday January the 14th and it was my birthday I was 39 years old and i said please god no more and there never was any more later i looked up my birth certificate and i was born at 6:20 a.m. on january the 14th 1900 and <laughs> the spiritual awakening I did not do that by myself please God no more the complete surrender the complete defeat I was through and I knew it I had made the decision five days before that and I came to Alcoholics Anonymous and I heard the laughter Ken and the warmth and the people put their arms around me and said come back and we want you and pretty soon they gave me a little envelope and it rattled. And I said, What's this? And they said, You're the treasurer.
1: <laughs>
0: and I was the treasurer of my little group. $4.98 was the most we ever had. <laughs> this is 36 years ago. And we talked big book. We talked big book. We didn't talk treatment center. We didn't talk clean. Our primary purpose is to stay sober. S-O-B-E-R. And sobriety is the name of the game. And then pretty soon they said, uh, you're going to go for six months to uh, intergroup. And um, I said, okay. So for six months I went to intergroup meetings. I still don't know what they said (laughs) but the time came in 1979 when I became the first woman chairman of Miami intergroup and I found out that intergroup is needed very badly and it needs the support of every group in your area intergroup in our area has no means of self-support except from the groups and if the groups don't support it it will fall apart And this is where the calls come in I know because I made one of those calls I called intergroup and I said I need help and I was directed to my first meeting and then pretty soon they said uh, you're going to be the steering committee and you're going to do this and I was very active at at my group level but in those first few weeks I was lonely and I was unloved my parents I had started to make amends right away you know that old 8th and ninth step just popped out at me I was barely sober (laughs) for three hours and I'm making
1: amends
0: (laughs) but it was okay because I stayed sober and I knew it was something I'd been taught to say I'm sorry so that's my first instinct but I'm sitting there on the bar stool at the club room and sitting next to a cute fella I had said to my uh the people that I respected I, and I have to tell you I never had one sponsor I don't really remember people talking about sponsorship in my early days of sobriety and when I did hear it it frightened me because in my uh, young life I had my father talked about being sponsored into this club or that club or my mother was sponsoring women into her groups and sponsorship to me meant investigating your bank account your morals your principles, my father used to say, I don't want to do business with him. He has no principles. And my mother would say, we don't want that woman in our clubhouse. She, is not, she has no principles. So I knew about principles before I came to Alcoholics Anonymous. But I knew that if I got a sponsor and they investigated my principles and my bank account and my morals, they wouldn't let me into AA.
1: <laughs>
0: so I chose my role models. And I had uh, half a dozen people that today I would, I would call sponsor but these role models were the people that I went to a- and I would ask their advice and, and so I told them, I said, now I have to get a job and they said, no, not yet I said, I said, I have to get my own apartment I was staying with a cousin and they said, no, not yet and I said, look at that cute fella over there and they said, no, not yet <laughs> but I didn't listen
1: and I married him <laughs>
0: but not before I had taken a very thorough fifth step with him
1: <laughs>
0: I did not at that early stage of a game take a fourth step I had taken in the mental hospital that Christmas in 1955 I had taken a, what the book calls a self a a um, um, a <clears throat> Hmm. What does it call it? Ken? the um, the one you take by yourself that it's uh, very unsatisfactory and immoral in immoral in- solitary in- immoral inventory instead of a complete moral inventory, I had taken this immoral inventory, so I knew all the things that were so terribly wrong, and so I began with a fifth step, and it was after that that I was able to do a fourth step. Uh, and I did this with this man and so now I'm sober I'm in AA I've got a fella I'm married and life is going to be happy ever after I have my prince we have the white horse he's got a beautiful new car I didn't know it wasn't paid for uh, we were struggling along on, on uh, his salary and I, I, I got a decent job and uh, life was all hunky-dory happy, joyous, and free uh, six months later he was drunk and I found out that I had married a slipper he had told me he'd been around the program for 16 years and I believed him and I found out that being around the program is not being sober in the program he had been around and around and around but my Bob knew this big book and he could talk oh he could talk but he couldn't walk the walk and I tried to fix him and he was a wonderful guy. I love him. He's dead now 20 years. He died of alcoholism and pills. Please drop the pills. Forget it. They're no good. And you mix them up. I heard when he started to drink and we were in Milltown stages at that time. And they said, now if you mix alcohol and Milltown, it'll kill you. So in the insanity of a new sober alcoholic, I thought, well, I'll kill him. So I, he was sitting there drinking out of this bottle, and I went. He, by this time, he's into the mill town bringing the bottles home from the doctors. And I went and got his mill town bottle, and I set it right down here next to the bottle. Now, you know, you mix them, right? So I put it right next to it, and I went into the bedroom and closed the door and waited for him to take the pills and drink the booze. Insane. I hadn't had a drink in uh, almost a year by that time and I'm pl- completely insane. I'd married a drunk and didn't know what to do. But I didn't have to drink because I was going to meetings and I was practicing a few principles that I was learning. And so I'm in the bedroom and all of a sudden I realize, I'll be the guilty one. I'll be, I murdered him. It's my fault. So I run out and I grab the pills and take them away again. So then uh, <clears throat> I decided I'd kill him in another fashion. <laughs> And I came home one night and he had flooded the bathroom and he was lying on the bathroom floor and the water is pouring out all over the place. And I, I looked at the situation and I I tried to turn off the water and I, I, I couldn't, I was panicking. And uh, I even ran outside trying to find the water thing. I said, I'll have water pump pliers. I knew there was such a thing in the tool chest. I have no idea today what water pump pliers do. But I thought, that's what I need. So I ran and I got these water pump pliers and I came in and there he is on the bathroom floor swimming, you know. And, and I, I didn't know what to do with these water pump pliers except kill him. And I'm standing like this and only God stopped me. Absolutely insane. I went to Al-Anon meetings. And, and I'm very early sobriety and I went to Al Anon and Al Anon was very new in our area. <coughs> and they tried to help me. And they kept talking about detached with love. And I didn't understand that. I didn't, the word detached just didn't hit me. But one day I went to New Orleans to the Deep South Convention and the Al Anon speaker that day talked about her alcoholic. And she described my alcoholic. As we do in AA, we talk about our Husbands, our mates, our friends, and, and we identify because we're all alike. And she talked about her charming husband, her handsome husband, her brilliant husband, and she's talking about my brilliant alcoholic, you know. He wasn't anything like that, but I thought he was. And, you know, but, and then she said, and then she had to release him with love. And she held out her hand and she was like a little bird. Let the little bird release him with love. And through the, Ellen on talk I was able to begin to release my bond and I began to live my own sobriety I tried to fix him knowing what I knew about alcoholism and I couldn't do it and I had to take care of my own sobriety and I had to divorce him he married his drinking companion and miraculously she stopped drinking and never took another drink And she called me one morning and she found him dead. And together we buried him. I've heard the promises read tonight, twice, at the earlier meeting. And um, I'm one who really hates to hear them called the promises. They're just a few of the many promises that our big book gives you. Um it tells us in a vision for you. It says, we have shown how we got out from under. And Ken has told you a little bit about himself and I've told you a little bit about myself. And you say, yes, I'm willing. But am I to be consigned to a life where I shall be stupid and boring and glum, like some righteous people I see? And Ken talked about that group of people who said, I'm sober three years. Isn't it wonderful? Yeah. And I'm the one that was attracted to the happy, joyous, and free group. And yet my life has not been happy, joyous, and free. As I have faced life because life is real. Life is not always what we want it to be. Life is not always fair. Uh, I used When I first came to meetings, we used to say, you come to at least two meetings a week. At least. And usually we made two or three a week. Remember, we only had sixteen groups in Miami when I got sober. You try to make ninety and ninety, you couldn't do it very well in those days. And that's another thing people made up: ninety and ninety. The big book doesn't say that. You make as many meetings as you can to be comfortable. And in the early days, of meeting every day is great if you can do it. But remember, you got families to handle. You got wives and husbands and children and jobs. And we're supposed to get back into the mainstream of life. And so we say, am I to be consigned to a life where I should be stupid, boring, and glum like some righteous people? I know I must get along without liquor, but can I? How can I? Have you got a sufficient substitute? And it says, yes, there is a substitute. Vastly more than that. It's a fellowship in Alcoholics Anonymous. And this has this promise. There you will find release from care, release from boredom, and release from worry. Your imagination will be fired and life will mean something at last. The most satisfactory years of your existence lie ahead. Thus we find the fellowship and so will you. Satisfactory years of your life. When I was 65 years old, oh yes, I've made 65, if you don't believe it, ask me. I tried to resign from the company that I had worked for for some time, and they said, "No, no, no. We have no age limit. Stay. Our company's going to be dissolved in a few years because the chairman is getting old." Stay. So I stayed another year, and when I turned sixty-six, I said, "I'm going to, I'm going to uh, retire." No, no, no. Seven, sixty-seven. No, don't retire. Sixty-eight. I said, "Come on, let's go." <laughs> and so, by mutual, I retired. And they gave me a wonderful retirement party. They gave me a gift and they had a beautiful spread. And I cried a few little tears, but not because I was retiring. I was crying because of the gal that arrived in Miami, Florida on January the 14th, 1956. Hopeless and helpless. Unable to cope with life. Unable to stand on her own two feet. A hopeless alcoholic. And yet this book told me the way to stay sober it told me precisely precisely how I could recover and so I retired and I was retired three months and I was going crazy up the wall and we have a member of my group that we call actor Bob and he says come on down to the theater because we need some help down there and so I went down to the theater and I said I'll take a temporary job part-time that's seven years ago and now I'm in showbiz I'm still working. I love it. It says, how how is this to come about? Where am I to find these people? And the next thing it says, you're going to meet these new friends in your own community. Near you, alcoholics are dying helplessly like people in a sinking ship. High and low. Rich and poor. Two weeks ago, we had our intergroup banquet. And I looked around at a group of about five, six hundred people. And there were people there from out of the prisons on a weekend pass. We had them from the Camilla's house. We had them from Salvation Army. And then over there was a table full of people that I had seen recently on television at the garden party for Queen Elizabeth. And I saw people there that I knew were millionaires and I saw some that had only a couple of bucks in their pocket. And I saw college students all dressed up in their best. All walks of life, rich and poor. These are the future fellows. Among them, and here's the promise. And and you've heard some of us say we we, we uh, you know Dave Aronofs, uh, Dave A, is here, and Dave and I served as delegates together. And if you don't know what a delegate is, like the concepts, if you don't know these things, ask your group what these things. These are the way we serve. First, we recover, and we stick together, and then we give back. We give back. And Dave and I served together as delegates on panel 27 at the conference in New York. It says, among them you will make lifelong friends. That's a promise. You remember the bozos we used to drink with? And now we've got lifelong friends. And they're here tonight. You will be bound to them with new and wonderful ties, for you have escaped disaster together. And you will commence shoulder to shoulder on your common journey. Then you will know what it means to give of yourself, that others may survive and discover life. Love thy neighbor as thyself and you'll find new dimensions beyond your fondest dreams. Happy miracles. Happy.